Investigators don't seem close to finding John Doe number two, but the legion of lookalike second suspects picked up and then let go in connection with the Oklahoma City bombing is growing. Attorney General Reno says that's how police work goes. From Fox 25, this is the 9 o'clock news. I think it's very likely he was murdered. I'm not able to prove it. I have, I have temporarily classified the death as undetermined. You see a body covered with blood removed from the room as Mr. Trent Adu was, soaked in blood, covered with bruises, and you try to gain access to the scene and the government of the United States says, no, you can't. There are questions about the death of Kenneth Trent Adu that will never be answered because of the actions of the United States government. Whether those actions were intentional or whether they were through incompetence, I don't know. It was botched. Or worse, it was planned. Hey, it's Jose Galison. You're watching No Way Jose. You can find me on No Way Jose YouTube channel, all the major auto podcasters in Odyssey as well. Do want to give credit to Jinx for that edit, uh, at Crack Connoisseur. I mean, I've used his edits quite a few times. This is Kenneth Trinity, uh edit. Uh, just want to let you guys know what's going on today. No guest today. It's just solo episode. Uh, I'm putting together another little presentation, sort of like I did for the Yiki one, but this time with Trinidu, uh, I will... I'm, gonna read my uh, article i wrote not too long ago that's actually getting published in the garrison magazine the journal of history and deep politics uh, i'll make sure to put that uh, link in there but i wanted to read that for a few reasons for one i just think it's good to kind of help me hammer down my uh you know kind of talking points when i go and shows to do this stuff so it'll be helpful for me also just one more way to get this out uh, i also think this may be could possibly work well as some sort of semblance of a speech if I ever get around to something like that. So it might be good just to kind of get in the practice of it. Uh, I also just think it's a good piece. Uh, also, just to promo the, uh, like I said, that going in the magazine. There's also going to be a Richard Booth uh, piece in there as well. So I highly recommend getting it. Uh, I'm looking forward to it. It's a pretty cool. Uh, I believe mine's already in the mail, so it should be should be coming to me here soon. Uh, I'm looking forward to it. But uh, I do want to let you guys know how this normally works. I didn't do the live stream option this time around just because I kind of did it last minute. 
I had a lot of other stuff going on, so I just did this while I had the opportunity. It wasn't like a scheduled thing like normally would be with guests, but typically how this works, I know I failed you guys here, is usually I set these up as a live stream, uh, but that's only for my patrons, and then roughly a week or so later, depending on my schedule, it just goes out to everyone, out to the public. Uh, there are exceptions, so if there's things like, say, something that's particularly a current events thing, or my four pony boys, those are typically the things where I'll just straight live stream. But everything else, uh, if you're a patron, you get that early, early stuff. And to get that, you need a patron at patreon.com. That's no way, Jose 2020. Uh, my the lowest level is two bucks that gives you the access to the early episodes. The highest level is twenty, and that's uh, my sponsors. My sponsors are Mikel Thorpe of the Expat Money Show. Also has Jeremy who has an Etsy store, Etsy.com slash shop slash raising liberty. You can follow him on Twitter at Jeremy Rhymes. Also, it's Toad, who's my co-host on Tower Gang. Uh, Tower Gang is an offensive comedy podcast that you can find on YouTube. All the major auto podcatchers uh, does really well on Spotify for some reason. I think it's because we have the video there. Also, Odyssey and Rumble as well. Uh, if you want to follow my buddy Toad, that's at Targeting Toad. Uh, I also have Zach Overacker at Z O V E R A C K. If you want to follow him, then Mike Degelash, then Lindsay or that Hangry, Hangry with an H, Mama on TikTok. She covers a lot of OKC stuff. So someone, uh, someone's taking up the torch covering the OKC stuff on TikTok. So that's cool. That way, uh, you know, that, that void's being filled. Uh, and I definitely wasn't going to do it myself. But once again, that's patreon.com, Snowy Jose 2020. Make sure you go to toplobster.com. That's where you can get that uh, Terrence Seeky didn't kill himself shirt uh, that you saw me wearing on Timcast. Uh, that one's been doing pretty well. Uh, but yeah, definitely buy that, wear that around, make people ask, what the heck is this? Uh, but yeah, uh, let's go ahead and get into it. Let me share screen from. Uh, this because it'll have a little bit of visual aids uh, at the end here i'm gonna probably also uh show a little presentation so it'll just be my little speech and then also an additional presentation on kenny uh kenneth trying to do all right. Uh, I'll be reading this along on my phone, but I'll just be kind of, you know, flicking through the pictures to kind of give you guys the visual aids if you want it. But, uh, you know, whatever. Do with that. We will. Uh, on February 9th, 2023, I went in Timcast IRL and wore a T-shirt with the words, Terrence Yeeke didn't kill himself. The audience was told how Yeeke deserves to be remembered as an American hero and that there are people still walking free with his blood in their hands. On March 3rd, 2023, less than a month after the appearance on Timcast IRL, CNN published an article on Terrence Hickey's suspicious death and surprisingly did what many would consider real journalism. Uh, scroll down. This is not to say that one event uh, the, that one event directly led to the other. Due to the nature of this sort of investigative journalism, it's beyond certain the article was in work well before the Timcast IRL show. This is to say it seems apparent that there is a groundswell of interest in this topic, and as such, two main points can be extrapolated from these two situations. One, now is the time to push for justice in the Oklahoma City bombing, even if the only justice attainable is condemning the corrupt institution of the Department of Justice in the eyes of the public. Two, this is how you do it, with a factual story that speaks deeply to our human nature, respect for human life, and has implications that expose the depravity of the aforementioned DOJ. For those two reasons, it only logically follows to tell you, the reader, of another story. The story of the murder of Kenneth Trinidad that was ruled a suicide in a subsequent multi-decade-long battle for justice by his righteous warrior of a brother, Jesse Trinidad. 
Kenneth Trendu joined the military during the Vietnam War and developed a heroin addiction around that time, something that would plague him for most of his early adulthood, for much of his early adulthood. He committed a bank robbery to fund his habit, was caught, did his time, and got his life back on track. He got married and had a newborn before he was picked up for a parole violation. He was crossing the Mexican border when this happened. His wife was Mexican and had family there. See, the thing was, this occurred as there was a nationwide hunt for John Doe 2 in the Oklahoma City bombing. Kenneth fit the description of John Doe 2 on multiple levels. First, John Doe 2 was suspected to have fled to Mexico or Canada. Also, Kenneth had a very similar build and complexion to what the eyewitnesses reported John Doe 2 to have. Additionally, Kenneth had a very similar pickup truck to what eyewitnesses reported seeing John Doe, John Doe 2 driving. Furthermore, Kenneth had a very similar, albeit generic for the mid-90s, dragon tattoo on his left arm to a tattoo John Doe 2 was suspected of sporting. Finally, John Doe 2 was suspected to be a part of a faction, which is later learned to be the ARA, or the Aryan Republican Army, that robbed banks to fund their domestic terrorism, and Kenneth had the misfortune of having a failed bank robbery in his criminal record. Kenneth was then transported to the Federal Transfer Center, in Oklahoma City. He also was inexplicably put in a high, a special high security part of the prison despite being a model prisoner. He then committed suicide uh, despite this being an area where that should be impossible. According to prison officials, he was found hanging from a bed sheet. Weird thing is, when the family finally received his body, they discovered extensive cuts, bruises, and burns in his body. They thoroughly documented these injuries through photographs, as you can see here. I know these might be a little bit small. But uh, you can uh, this will this will also likely be in the presentation that I'm going to show you guys here soon. But Bill get a better look at it uh, at the pictures. Uh, but yeah, these are pictures that the family took when they received the body to kind of document the injuries. Uh, you know, kind of give you an idea of kind of the shape they came back in. So obviously, you can see the cuts here. Those are obviously from some sort of autopsy or something. Those obviously weren't done uh, you know prior to dying. All right. Uh, right. <laughs> Additionally, there were two fellow inmates that claimed they heard screams and other noises that sounded like torture. They both died before they could testify in court. One of a suicide and the other of a drug overdose. Coincidence? It's hard to tell, but it's awfully convenient for Kenneth's killers. Furthermore, according to Jesse Trendu, Norman Pearl, who provided technical analysis as an expert videographer for the Rodney King trial, was contacted by the FBI to check their camera that mysteriously had no recording of that night to ask him his expert opinion on whether the loss of video was done manually. The way Jesse tells Norman's account of the story, they asked for no written report to be done, only verbal. He said the tape was erased manually. He was willing to testify. He reportedly died of a heart attack before he could do so. According to Je uh, Kenneth's brother, Jesse Trendu, Timothy McVeigh uh, himself contacted Jesse to tell me he believed the FBI mistook his brother for Richard Lee Guthrie, who many believed was John Doe too. Guthrie committed suicide shortly after Kenneth's death after saying he was going to blow the lid off the OKC bombing story. The coincidences keep piling up. As you can see in the picture there, there's a little clip from a newspaper clipping uh, speaking about Richard Lee Guthrie. Uh, just kind of the circumstances around his death, uh, definitely a little fishy. You'd think this would be the end of the story since Kenneth was, in the eyes of the public, just a common criminal. No such luck for Kenneth's murderers. This unleashed their worst nightmare. Jesse Trandu, Ken's brother, a former Marine, and one of the best lawyers in the country. Jesse set forth a crusade for justice against those responsible on all fronts. Political, civil, criminal, and FOIA. 
Let me get a drink of water real quick. Mouth is all messed up. As a result of this persistent endeavor, Jesse has pried a huge portion of the documents that have helped to expose the criminals involved in the OKC bombing from the hands of the federal government. It's because of his enduring battle and the work of many researchers compiling and processing these documents and others that I have no qualms with asserting that the DOJ's hands are drenched in blood when it comes to the OKC bombing to one degree or another. The depravity of the FBI cannot be understated here. At one point, the FBI admitted to perjury and their legal defense was, it is within our authority to do so. Also, remember the high security section of the prison that became Kenneth's torture chamber mentioned earlier? The original internal prison order to send Kenneth to that section was turned in blank, thus providing no reason or explanation for his placement there. Shortly thereafter, the blank order simply disappeared from the evidence record and two markedly different orders for his transfer somehow appeared. It's like when a child tells a parent a terribly constructed lie and the parent feels disrespected that, disrespected that the child didn't even attempt to lie well. These are examples of the arrogance and disregard for the rule of law by the FBI and one of many reasons why it needs to be rooted out and scattered to the wind. Jesse is still fighting the fight to this day and has stated he will continue to do so until the day he dies. There is no need for him to do it alone. If you haven't caught on already by the title, I'd like to make Kenneth Trendu and Tarantiki something akin to a meme. A simple Tarantiki didn't kill himself, or uh, Kenneth Trendu didn't kill himself, can move mountains if done in concert with others. It speaks to us on a deep human level. You never know what thing may set off a chain reaction. The death of Kenneth, whom the murderers likely thought was just an inmate that no one who mattered would care about, is what caused Jesse Trendu to enter the fray. This produced the state of the OKC bombing story that we have before us now. The sources are there, and there is a trail of blood from the Oklahoma City bombing to the federal government, and it should be obvious to anyone else who, who uh, to anyone else who takes an honest look. Terrence Hickey didn't kill himself. Kenneth Trendu didn't kill himself. All right, and I wanted to show you this picture right here. You should be able to make it out pretty well. It's kind of hard to tell what this one is at first glance, but if you look close, and they'll get into this in this video I'm going to show you here in a little bit. But you can see right around here, this is a neck. This is Kenny Kenneth Trendu's neck right here. Uh, and uh, you may have heard me, if you've seen me talk about other places, I've mentioned how it has almost like a zip tie look, uh, look to it. And I mean, I guess maybe it's not perfect, but I remember when I first heard the zip tie comment, I was like, that's weird. Like, okay, like that just seemed uh, too specific for me. And then once I saw the photo and looked in, like, I, I see it. I, like I, it is like it's clearly some looks like some sort of self-locking something i mean maybe it could be some sort of heavily braided rope of some sort but even though that doesn't really look like the same sort of impression uh, i think i've seen other pictures where it's a little bit more clear you can look closer it definitely looks like it i was actually given for this article this caption from uh jesse trying to do himself he sent this along uh it says kenneth michael Trendu was tortured and murdered in august 1995 while incarcerated at the Federal Transfer Center in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. He was strangled with plastic handcuffs or flexicuffs. Kenneth Trendu's family believes that he was murdered by agents of the Federal Bureau of Investigation. Above is a photograph of Kenneth Trendu's neck. The photo depicts a groove or furrow left on Kenneth's neck by ligature that was used to strangle him after he had been extensively tortured and clearly shows the cross-tie-like impressions caused by the locking mechanism of the plastic handcuffs comment slash photo description provided for this article by jesse trying to do 
yes, that is a uh, yes. If you look at that, it, it definitely it seems that way. I mean, I guess maybe it could be something else, but it definitely these are ligatures left on his neck either way. Whether it's a whether it's zip ties or rope or what, either way, it's uh this is not uh consistent with the official story that he killed himself. Uh, I mean, I guess you could say, oh, I guess you could attribute that to some sort of hanging, but this doesn't look like that what they would use for that, but. I know uh, there's a lot more than just the neck uh, that goes into it. Uh, like I said, at the end there, you know, go check out the rest of my series. If you want to, you know, like I ended at the end, the sources there and the trail of blood in Oklahoma city bomb, the federal government, it should be obvious to anyone else who takes an honest look. And I genuinely believe that. So I think if you check out my series, you'll understand where I'm coming from and uh, you know, how, uh, how uh, culpable <laughs> some of our, the people in power are here, but all right, uh, let's go. I'm going to go ahead and bring on, the last little bit of presentation here's an actual uh here's a presentation from jesse trying to do himself uh i mean it's kind of all i guess in a sense like a longer version of what i just did but it definitely does a lot better version or a lot better than what i did so uh highly recommend checking it out sticking around for it it's definitely well worth it uh and yeah i uh, hope you guys enjoy that little speech uh yeah if you want to follow me at targeting Jose, but yeah, I'm going to play this out and then uh, I'll just, you know, end it when it's over. So stick around, listen to this. I highly recommend. For those who have come tonight, thank you very much. We really appreciate your interest in this topic, which is incredibly important. Um, Jesse Trenadu was a, a successful sports attorney uh, living that life in Salt Lake City. Uh, a former All-American at a little teeny tiny college down in Southern California called USC. Um, and uh, uh, his brother was murdered. And, uh, and you'll learn so much about that story tonight. And he's been fighting battles for justice for 17 years since 1995. And, and so the story you'll see tonight will say all that needs to be said about that. Uh, I just want to tell you about the handouts because I really do want you to get them. Um, in 1996, 1995, 1996, somebody walked up to me and handed me a GQ magazine. These articles are not online. I personally believe they're not online because of government intervention, but regardless, they're not online. So there's 250 copies of a 1996 article about the murder of, of, of Jesse Trinidad's brother uh, and the 1997 GQ article, and they're down here and they're paper clipped together. Um, and they're a key part of tonight's presentation. Um, several years ago, two women, um, one of two women completed multiple years of being continuously sexually assaulted in the Washington Correction Center for Women outside of Gig Harbor. And she made her way to Columbia Legal Services and to Beth Colgan, uh, and Beth filed a lawsuit um, on behalf of that woman that had just released uh, and one and the another woman who was still there um, just to make drive home the importance of civil rights litigation. Uh, we've got a copy of the actual lawsuit down here on the table, as well as a Seattle Times article. And you ought to pick it up and take it home and, and read about it so that you really uh, understand what can happen from civil rights litigation like Jesse's been pursuing for 15, 16, 17 years. It's uh, uh, DOC not only had to write a check for a million dollars, but they had to affect remedial action down at the prison 
hopefully fix the prison so that those kind of sexual assaults couldn't continue. Um, and the last thing, one of the most courageous things I've ever seen in my life was, <clears throat> was Lizzie Reed standing up in front of four or 500 people at Kane Hall on April 11th and reading this essay, which is down here, which is about her being raped while in prison um, and about the fact that the guy who did it uh, was not prosecuted. Uh, it's really interesting to me that Pierce County, as a matter of policy, does not prosecute PREA cases. Uh, and uh, the DOC's investigation was about this far. They called the rapist up, said, did you rape her? He said, no, end of investigation. Uh, Dawn, please turn on the CNN video. Thank you. Americans are taking toward violent criminals these days. With a, a new three strikes and your outlaws and other measures, there's a new national mood to make criminals pay for their acts. But away from the public eye and behind bars, are inmates being forced to pay beyond the intent of the law? There are indications that some inmates are being tortured and even killed. CNN national correspondent Bonnie Anderson is here now to start a series on this entitled Criminal Injustice. Well, every day in America, the FBI investigates allegations of corrections officials abusing inmates. Sometimes the accusations even include murder. Today, we'll look at one such case in Oklahoma City. To friends and family, Kenneth Trenadu was a kind man who, after spending six years in prison for bank robbery, became a hard worker and married a longtime sweetheart in the late 1980s. The couple loved spending time with their nieces and nephews, and finally, earlier this year, had a boy of their own. Kenneth was pleased to have a baby. Uh, he talked about uh, if anybody could teach a child what not to do, he was a person who certainly could do it, and that was his attitude about the baby. But last July, Trenadu was arrested for not reporting to his parole officer. He faced a hearing and, according to his lawyer brother, a few months in prison for the infraction. In an August 17th letter to his wife, Trenadu said he was headed to the Federal Transfer Center in Oklahoma City. Be there 10 to 14 days, he wrote, then on to where I'll be doing my time. On August 19th, he called his family from the prison. He was pretty upbeat. Left a message for his wife to my sister saying, would you please send him a uh, money order? to take care of his personal expenditures until he got through this probation violation hearing. But on August 21st, Kenneth Trentadu was dead. According to the warden, who called the family and sent this follow-up letter, he was found hanging from a light fixture in a single cell used for protective custody inmates. Prison officials believed it was suicide. How can you hang yourself in a security cell when there's not supposed to, there's supposed to be suicide proof? For Trenadu's brother, Jesse, the story did not ring true. I can't understand why he would be asking me to help him get ready for his probation here. One day and then kill himself the next. Trenadu demanded an immediate autopsy. But according to this fax, prison authorities refused, unless Trenadu's ailing mother provided a power of attorney and a letter of consent. This, when federal regulations clearly state a warden may order an autopsy in homicides or suicides with no authorization from the inmates next of kin. And I'm starting to get evasive answers from them. I'm having difficulty getting my brother's body released. It took a week almost to get him home. They'd asked to have him cremated. We said, no, we want him home. An autopsy was finally performed. 
death by asphyxiation. But all other details would not be revealed until the FBI's investigation is complete. When Trenadu's family got his body home for burial, they were stunned and angry enough to photograph it thoroughly. Prison officials say it was suicide. What do you say? It's a lie. They killed him. Um, the thing that troubles me is why they think we're such fools. Uh, they send my brother's body home, um, made up, so you can't see his injuries. And he is beaten to a pulp. His head is smashed in his forehead, the back of his head. His throat's been cut. His knuckles are black and swollen. He's literally beaten from the top of his head to the soles of his feet. He has bruises from fingerprints on his biceps where they held him and they killed him. He has shackles, marks on his legs, and he was chained when they killed him. Burns? Burns on his face and his shoulders. No marks? He had been stomped. There's a bruise of a heel on his ribs. The skin is off of his back where they probably, it looks as though they dragged his body after he was dead. Trentadu sent these photos to the warden. On September 1st, 11 days after the death, the prison issued a press release referring to the abrasions and bruises for the first time. Permissible items found in the cell, according to the release, would support presumptions that cuts on the body were self-inflicted. You received his personal effects. What was in them? You have a picture of his wife and baby. You have a plastic cup, vitamin pills, soap, toothbrush, comb, um, nothing that allowed him to do that kind of injury to himself. He has a number of abrasions on his face, around his right eye and on his forehead. Dr. Steve Dunton, a medical examiner in the Atlanta area, reviewed the photos and videotape of Trentadu's body for CNN. This collection of different injuries, bruises, abrasions, different areas of the body, particularly those back of his hand, back of his arm, I find this to be highly suspicious. They don't appear to be self-inflicted? Most of these, no. I don't see how they could be. In a statement, the FBI in Oklahoma City said, the photographs are very troubling, and we're going to investigate as well as we can and come to a conclusion. Prison officials refuse to speak with CNN and are not cooperating with Trinidad's family, not even to explain why he was in protective custody apart from all other inmates. When Trinidad's wife, mother, and siblings requested a copy of the paperwork he would have had to sign before witnesses in order to request a single cell for security reasons, they were told to file a Freedom of Information request, and they did. They also asked for photographs of the cell, videotapes from the surveillance cameras routinely used in such facilities, the logbook showing who was on duty when Trenadu died, and the medical reports prisons by law must complete upon an inmate's arrival to document his physical and psychological condition. You wrote to the warden did you get any satisfaction nothing you wrote to the acting warden nothing you wrote to the um regional council for the bureau of prisons nothing you wrote to the person who heads up the bureau of prisons nothing you wrote to the to janet reno nothing the bureau of prisons regional council and officials in the washington dc headquarters also refused to speak with cnn citing the ongoing fbi investigation you're grieving but are you also angry 
I have a rage that you cannot put into words. And I will always be thankful to him for his wounds. He was able to tell us in death that it wasn't a suicide. Why should the public care that a one-time victimizer might have become a victim in prison? I would say that the people who killed my brother represent the United States, and that should scare the hell out of all of us. With the Federal Transfer Center, a hub for inmates bound for penitentiaries around the country, FBI agents say it will take time before they can track down prisoners who may have heard or seen what happened. Until then, Trinidad's family will just have to wait for some answers. Now, according to people close to the investigation, prison officials just two weeks ago finally allowed the medical examiner's office into the cell where Trinidad died. Bobby I'd like to thank you all for coming here tonight and thank Ari for having me. This week is the first time in almost 17 years I've looked at that tape. And I think it was more painful than when I watched it the first time. I could not have imagined when that news clip was filmed that it would be the start of a 17-year war with the Department of Justice, a war that I don't see an end to. I look at my wonderful wife and my children, and I see what I've missed over the last 17 years in this fight, how distant I've become, how unpleasant to be with on many times. Because early on in this fight, I was consumed with rage and hate. Uh, and I didn't start out to distrust and hate the Department of Justice. They earned that distrust and hate. I didn't start out to solve the Oklahoma City bombing. I didn't start out to expose the corruption on a massive level in the Department of Justice. Things like PatCon, and hopefully we'll get an opportunity to talk here tonight how the FBI especially hides records from defense counsel, evidence from defense counsel. They have a system for doing it. How they have a system for recruiting and planting informants on the staffs of federal judges, uh, on the staffs of congressmen and senators, even on defense teams and high profile criminal cases. And I wanna to talk to you about what a war like this is about. It's painful to see my brother's face again, although that's burned, that image is burned in my brain forever. To see your parents who died during this fight and you had no time to grieve, you just consumed, consumed by the fight. And to talk to you, it is much like a war. You fight these on many fronts. You fight them on a civil front by suing the government. You fight it on a criminal front by trying to have people indicted for the crime. You fight it politically by trying to recruit your congressmen and senators to help you. And lastly, you fight it on the Freedom of Information Act front. And the Freedom of Information Act is a law that Congress passed that says you have a right to demand from federal agencies records. And unless they're protected by a privilege such as national security, national defense, or an ongoing criminal prosecution, they have to give them to you. And I want to talk to you about how this war raged on all of those fronts for 17 years. And the first thing I want to tell you about is my brother being at the transfer center. He came out of the military during the Vietnam War, like lots of folks, boys did. He came out a heroin addict and he robbed the bank to support it. He was caught, he pled guilty, he went to prison, federal prison. He does his time 
He's released in 1987. He has a probation officer that doesn't believe in beer drinking. And Kenny worked construction in Southern California. And I helped him fight that condition of probation and parole. We took it all the way up and lost. So Kenny goes back to his probation officer and says, look, I want to drink beer. So there's no point in me coming in once a month to give a urine test. Uh, come and get me. And they never did. He gets married. 1995, he has a child. His wife is Mexican-American. They have family in Baja, California. He's coming back across the border. He's picked up and sent to Oklahoma City. And at the time, it seemed nothing unusual to me because uh, he said he was going back for a parole hearing, revocation hearing. But now I know the federal judge that convicted him was in San Diego. His probation officer was in San Diego. The judge has to revoke your probation and parole. There was no purpose to be in, in Oklahoma City, but he was. And he arrived on a Friday night, speak with him on Saturday. He supposedly commits suicide on a Monday. And this is what happened in the civil side of that lawsuit. We didn't start out to sue the government. We started out wanting justice for my brother and some modicum of support for my brother's widow and her little boy. The, they made two attempts to have his body cremated. Once they asked us, we said no, then they go to the medical examiner. He says, no, the family has to do that. It's their decision. The logs, everything, that litany of, of material I asked for in a Freedom of Information Act request on CNN, the logbooks disappeared. Now the logbooks are maintained at the institution until they're full, and then they're sent to the National Archives. The logbooks that was shown people who had access to my brother either disappeared or the pages from the logs disappeared. The crime scene, the Department of Justice does an investigation. The crime scene photographs disappear. There's a surveillance camera videotape. The FBI says it's blank. I receive a call from a very famous videographer named Norman Pearl, who was the videographer for the uh, Rodney King trial. He says, look, this is strange. I wanted to call you. He said, the FBI brought me a surveillance tape. They brought me a camera and asked me, was the camera functioning? And I, and I said, they didn't want to report. They wanted an oral report, nothing in writing. He calls them back and says, the tape's erased. They immediately show up at his door. They take back the camera. They take back the tape and tell him to keep his mouth shut. He calls me and says, I'll come and testify for you. Shortly before the trial, Pearl's dead of a heart attack. My brother's clothing, he was wearing bloodstained clothing at the time. It's apparent from the photographs we got later. That, and that disappeared, gone. There's supposed to be a, a psychological reconstruction done of an inmate suicide in the federal system. The Department of Justice requires it. And the purpose is to see, was it one, a, really a suicide? And two, if it was, what could we have done to prevent this or to alleviate this, this problem? The only inmate suicide in the federal system for which a psychological reconstruction was not done, my brother's case. We get into the civil suit and find out that 41 pieces of evidence disappeared out of the FBI's official file. I say, what was gone? They said, well, not only is the evidence gone, but all chain of custody records for that evidence are gone too. What happened to it? We don't know, it's just gone. Had two inmate witnesses, a kid named Nick Acabasso. He supposedly dies of a 
drug overdose before the trial. Had a witness named Alden Gillis Baker. Both of these men said they could hear the torture and a beating. Baker is in Lompoc. The Department of Justice recruits three inmates to convince him to change his testimony. We attempt to get a protective order for him. The judge won't grant it. Baker hangs himself, according to the Department of Justice, a month before our trial was to start. Before he hanged himself, he contacted the U.S. attorney handling the civil suit and told him about the threats and asked him to stop it. And the U.S. attorney tells him, unless you change your mind, you'll get no help from your testimony. You'll get no help from me and hung up. That call was recorded. I asked for the tape. The judge won't turn it over. We were able to, and it's unusual to do this, get grand jury testimony of the guards and witnesses who said they saw my brother hanging. And we depose them and three of them collapse on cross-examination and admit they lied to the grand jury. So I think we've got them now. We'll go to the prosecutors, U.S. attorney and say, look, you can charge these guys with perjury and you can get them to, change, to tell the truth what happened. The Department of Justice goes to a federal judge and gets an order prohibiting me from reporting the crimes, reporting the crimes to the U.S. attorney and to the Senate Judiciary Committee. Couldn't believe it, but they got that order just like that. We have the Inspector General with the Department of Justice do a multi-year investigation, supposedly, of my brother's murder. It's the only report, I understand, by the Inspector General's office not involving national security that's been sealed. In a civil suit against the United States Department of Justice, it's tried to the court, not the jury. Two weeks before that trial started, the OIG, the Inspector General, sends a copy of that report to the judge and other evidence. I asked for them, <laughs> can't have them. We go to trial anyway. That's just in the year 2000. This is a couple month trial in Oklahoma. We end up with a $1.1 million judgment, but it's not for my brother's murder. It's for the intentional infliction of emotional distress upon my family. The Department of Justice tells us, we'll never pay you. And they appeal. The 10th Circuit sends it back. We win again. They appeal again. 10th Circuit sends it back. We win again. They take it up again, and suddenly in 2008, they pay the judgment. Now, they probably thought we'd go away, but that just made us armed and dangerous. And I did a test on that. We put out a $250,000 reward for a year. No one claimed that. Now, that told me this involved more than the guards. The reason if it had been guards, somebody would have come forward to claim that reward. You don't claim that reward because somebody way up the food chain is looking at you and you're gonna pay a price if you do it. And that's, that ended and I, and I, it was hard to take to have it end like that. No more recourse civilly. And then we tried the criminal route and it was done in conjunction with the civil suit. We could not get a grand jury convened. So we went and 
had billboards put up with those horrible pictures of my brother's body on it. Now, we couldn't afford the billboards, but the billboard company said, you provide the, the, the pictures and we'll put them up. In the communities in which those posters and those billboards went up, the city council supported us. A lot of the public complained, said, these are horrible things. We don't want our kids looking at that. And they stood behind us. But key, key to the criminal side of it was the medical examiner, Dr. Fred Jordan. He shows up at that cell that morning to pick up my brother's body, and he demands his investigators access. They tell him no. They get back to the medical examiner's office, and they call the FBI and say, preserve that crime scene. The Department of Justice has the cell cleaned by noon that day. They let Jordan back in in November. He does a luminol test, and that's a test you can put for blood. That you, it's a, a solvent you put on the walls or floor and use a, a blue light, a black light, and where there's blood, it glows. Jordan told me it glowed like a Christmas tree. Jordan's there. They point to a note on the wall and says, it's a suicide note. Jordan says, well, why did he sign his name Tom instead of Kenny? Jordan said, I want the handwriting analyzed. Now, Jordan told me that the cell was sealed, said FBI crime scene. He comes back two weeks, two weeks later, the cell's painted. I find out, and again, all of these things I didn't know at the time, that before the grand jury convened, the deputy attorney general, who was then Jamie Gorlick, convened the meeting with the criminal side out of Maine Justice, who were going to do the grand jury, and the civil lawyers who were going to do the defense of my family's civil suit, which we hadn't filed. And I asked for those records. And the Department of Justice says, work product. Well, work product only applies when you're anticipating a civil suit. There's no way they should have been sitting down with the civil lawyers and the, the prosecutors. And they were all out of Maine justice. Typically, when you have a crime committed, it'll be your local U.S. attorney here that prosecutes it. If there's a civil suit filed, it'll be the local U.S. attorney that defends the United States government. In my brother's case, time after time after time, it's main justice lawyers. I find out that the first thing they did was go to the armed forces pathologist, a man named Gormley, and ask him, he's the chief pathologist for the military, will you come to Oklahoma City and testify that this is a suicide? He said, he'll know. In fact, he called me and told me what they'd done. He said, this man's been murdered. I find out before the grand jury, they don't tell the grand jury that the FBI crime lab had found somebody else's blood in the cell. Don't bother to have it tested. They claim Kenny had been hanging by a bedsheet and been cut down. It was a braided bedsheet ligature, according to the FBI. The crime lab said it hadn't been cut. They don't tell the grand jury about that or the medical examiner. Kenny had called when he was in Oklahoma and he'd spoken to my wife and she said, how'd you get to Oklahoma? And he said, it's that jet age thing. And he went on to explain how that, that's why they fly prisoners, where they fly prisoners around the country. And they altered that transcript of the call to say, it's that AIDS thing. And tell the grand jury that my brother had AIDS and that's probably why he killed himself. Jordan was an ally. And this video was shot. Now, bear in mind that Fred Jordan was the key witness for the government, one of the key witnesses in the bombing case. 
My brother was killed shortly after the bombing. He's handling the bomb, Oklahoma City bombing case. He's handling my brother's murder. And this is an interview he gave in July of 1997. This is KOKH-TV, Oklahoma City. From Fox 25, this is the 9 o'clock news. I've made a lot of people very angry at me, and you know, that's just a shame. Because I am trying to protect the public safety here, and it's just, it's just too bad. That's the way it's going to have to be. Fred Jordan, the state's chief medical examiner, speaks out in anger about the mysterious death of Kenneth Michael Trenadu, a Fox 25 News exclusive. And good evening, I'm Kirsten McIntyre. And I'm Damon Gardenhire, and for Jack Bowen, Tonight, a major development in an ongoing Fox 25 News investigation. The state's chief medical examiner says it's taking too long to find out what really happened to an inmate who died inside Oklahoma City's Federal Transfer Center nearly two years ago. And tonight, Fred Jordan is demanding the local bombing grand jury investigate the mysterious death of Kenneth Michael Trinidou. Fox 25's Phyllis Williams has been following this case for more than a year now. Phyllis Jordan really rarely gives interviews. Why is he doing it today? Well, Damon, he says he's simply fired up and he wants action. Jordan says if Kenneth Michael Trinidou was murdered or if anybody else is murdered at the Federal Transfer Center, the public has the right to know. But Jordan says that's not happening. Do you believe he was murdered? I think it's very likely he was murdered. I'm not able to prove it. I have, I have temporarily classified the death as undetermined. You see a body covered with blood removed from the room, as Mr. Trentadu was, soaked in blood, covered with bruises, and you try to gain access to the scene and the government of the United States says, no, you can't. They continued to prohibit us from having access to the scene of his death, which is unheard of in 1997, until about five months later, we went in there and luminoled, and it lit up like a candle because of the blood still present on the walls of the room after four or five months. But at that point, we have no scene. We have no crime scene. So the, there are questions about the death of Kenneth Trentadu that will never be answered because of the actions of the United States government. Whether those actions were intentional or whether they were through incompetence, I don't know. And it's not easy to communicate with the federal government. It was botched. Or worse, it was planned. Why is there a problem? Is there a problem? Well, you tell me. You tell me why there's a problem. Is there a problem? Could it be because the family will not let this go? Would you if it were your relative? There are some people who would question why, you're, why you feel so strong about this case because after all they go, it's just an inmate. It's not just an inmate. Mr. Trenadu might be somebody I wouldn't let in my house. But let me tell you something. He's a human being or was a human being. And I'm not saying I like these guys. I'm not saying I wouldn't be terrified if you put me out there with them. But I'm saying that they're our responsibility. And I'm saying that the investigation of their deaths is my responsibility as long as I'm chief medical examiner. Damn it, I'm going to do it. Regardless of what I have to do. Now, the other, the other thing is, do you think that the prison system, uh, do you think that the court system is so accurate and so effective that there is no one in jail that's innocent? If you do, I have a piece of shore property just outside of El Reno. I want to, I want to sell you it. I think that we need an Oklahoma County grand jury made up of Oklahoma County citizens in which the U.S. Attorney for the Western District of Oklahoma, Mr. Ryan, can participate where the people in Washington cannot forbid him to do that, uh, that he can, he can participate in our investigation as an Oklahoman, as somebody concerned about our city. Can we try contacting Reno? 
Oh, yes. Yes, I have. And what's happening? Yes, I have. Let me tell you about that. Back when we were still investigating the bombing, because Mr. Trinidad died shortly after the bombing, I, the medical examiner for the state in which the Murrah building bombing occurred, made a call one day to Mrs. Reno's office. I told them who I was, and I said I would like to speak to an assistant U.S. attorney. I was told, you can't, none is available, but the door has been shut from Ms. Reno's office to me as the chief medical examiner forever. But you will fight for this county grand jury that's oh, yes. looking at yes, the I bombing will. to look at... Yes, I will. And if that doesn't happen, I'll continue to fight in any way I possibly can. My job as chief medical examiner is, among other things, to investigate deaths that occur in prison. Well, Jordan also wants the local bombing grand jury to tour the Federal Transfer Center and see if it's possible for an inmate to hang himself, as the FCC officials claim. And Damon, there is a new law that was signed in February that would give the medical examiner immediate access to a death scene at the Federal Transfer Center. But Jordan says that the feds are trying to block that. What they want him to do is have access if only if they say the death is suspicious. All right. Good job, Phyllis. Stay on for us. Kirsten? And Jesse Trinidou, Michael, uh, Michael's brother, uh, and his family have been waging a war to find out what really happened at the FTC for nearly two years now. Jesse Trinidou, who is a Salt Lake City attorney, says Jordan's efforts may be what's needed to finally get the truth out. I think he senses and has experienced the same frustrations we have. To have been lied to, uh, to have evidence destroyed, uh, witnesses threatened, witnesses hidden. Uh, the actions of the United States Department of Justice in this matter stink. Jesse Trinidou has appeared before the federal grand jury. He and his family have been complaining, campaigning throughout the country, even bringing their concerns to Capitol Hill. So the very latest tonight in the Trinidou case, Chief Medical Examiner Fred Jordan is asking that the bombing grand jury be allowed to look into the case. A federal grand jury has been investigating Trinidou's death for the past nine months, but so far, no action has been taken. The Senate Judiciary Committee, as well as Amnesty International, are now involved in the case. And Trinidu, the Trinidad family has filed a federal lawsuit against the FBI, the Bureau of Prisons, and the Justice Department. This was Jordan in July of 97. Shortly after that interview, he calls me up and he says, I'm going to change the manner of death to suicide. You've got 15 minutes to convince me not to. And I said to him, Dr. Jordan, the lawsuit has just started. I'm going to find the evidence. Don't do this. And he hung up the phone and changed it to suicide. I talked to his staff sometime later, and they said before doing that, he'd been visited by two FBI agents who had removed him from the medical examiner's office, brought him back several hours later. He was white as a sheet, and he went and made the call to me. There went the criminal prosecution. But I still, my family, we still had hopes about political cause a very powerful senator was my senator and I knew him, Orrin Hatch. And I thought he was the chairman of the Judiciary Committee. And this is an interview Hatch gave in October of 97. And he gave this interview after the grand jury had concluded. It had been, the conclusion had been announced as an O-bill the grand jury had actually concluded on August the 1st, 1997. When it happened, though, there was a meeting by then Deputy Attorney General Eric Holder. 
and Stuart Margulies and other high-ranking staff members from the, the Attorney General Reno's staff. And it was what Holder coined the Trinidu mission. And the subject was, how are we going to handle the release of this no bill on indictment for Kenneth Trinidu's murder? And they put together a plan. And Hatch, not to deal with Hatch, they said, Hatch is crucial. We've got to deal with Hatch on this. Got to muzzle him. And we've got to do all these other things. And one of the other things they did is they did a videotape of a reenactment of my brother's suicide, send it to all the national media. Holder refers to it in his staff as Trinidus, meaning things to do, and Trinidons, meaning we don't want to do these things. But the crucial one was Hatch, Hatch, Hatch. And this is Hatch's statement to the press when the news of the no bill was announced at the end of October of 1997. What's your reaction to the uh, letter from the Justice Department that they walked away from the Well, I've been somewhat surprised by it, uh, both surprised and unsurprised. The fact is, is that, is that they have not found any criminal uh, liability here. On the other hand, they can't explain the tremendous inconsistencies of what happened in this particular instance. So I'm very concerned about it. They have left it open for the state to determine whether or not there has been criminal activity and whether or not people need to be indicted. But their own investigation did not disclose that, according to them. I met with the Deputy Attorney General just last night on this. So you've seen the pictures uh, and the information of the case. How could there be no federal crime wrongdoing in the death of Trent? Well, it wasn't just pictures. It was the finding of blood, the inconsistencies with regard to the death, the, the way the matter was was covered up, really. The lack of proof that he really did harm to himself. Uh, all of this is very, very uh, upsetting to a lot of people, including myself. Now, we haven't held a hearing on this uh, in, uh, lately because of the ongoing federal investigation. But now that the general people have completed their analysis of this and their investigation, I think we will hold a hearing between now and the end of the year. And just to see what we can do to get to the bottom of this. Is there anything further that you can do besides hold it in? Not a lot. <clears throat> Not a lot. Uh, we, we've pushed uh, the FBI and the uh, Justice Department as far as we can push them. Now what we got to do is push them through hearings and see what happens there. But it still doesn't mean that, uh, you know, that justice won't be done in this case because the state, <coughs> certainly the state is looking into it and may very well decide more has to be done. In uh, December, you told Attorney General <coughs> Janet Reno that it looked like this was murder. Do you still believe that Trinidad was murdered? Well, I don't know that I ever went that far, but it certainly looks terrible. And it certainly makes one wonder whether or not the murder was committed or a manslaughter. Uh, it certainly has a lot of elements of, of, uh, of uh, questionability. And uh, if you look at all the facts, the body, they tried to cremate the body before anybody could see that that body was bruised and battered. Uh, the blood that was found, the lack of uh, following procedures, I mean, just on and on. Uh, there's a lot wrong with this case, and I hope somebody will get to the bottom of it. But apparently the federal government hasn't been able to do Well, if, if the feds can't make a case for something that happened in their institution, and this man was in their custody with their people, what chance does the state have? I think it's very difficult for the state to do 
but nevertheless, they may have some ways of doing it because uh, there were state people who who uh, may have been involved, especially from the standpoint of uh, following up on what happened. Well, if indeed the state does make a case in this incident, this crime, if they find it to be what occurred on federal property, is it not thus a federal crime? Could be, and if they can make the case, we may. Uh, I'm sure the Justice Department will revisit it. Uh, I, I was disappointed in, the, in these findings. There's just, there are just too many unexplained facts, too much brutality apparently done, and uh, and frankly, no answers. I can't understand them. Well, does it have the aroma of cover-up? Yep, it has the aroma of cover-up. You talked about holding a hearing. Will your committee have full access to the Oklahoma federal grand jury's findings? Say that again. You talked about having a hearing uh, this session. Will your committee have full access to the Oklahoma federal grand jury's findings? No, uh, we can't get into grand jury matters. See, that's one of the problems we've had is that they always hide behind the grand jury. And when I say cover up, I'm not saying necessarily by the Justice Department. I don't think they would cover it up, but I, it there certainly looks like a cover up from the beginning in this thing. And uh, somebody, uh, somebody other than Trinidad beat himself up, you know, beat Trinidad up. Uh, the injuries that he suffered on his body do not appear to have been self-inflicted. Neither does uh, the actuality of the death. Will the uh, subcommittee investigating the FBI crime lab also look into the handling of evidence in this case? I don't know. We'll have to see. Uh, I think the regular hearing will go into what they did and what they failed to do. So we'll get into that regardless. Not probably be a full committee hearing unless, uh, unless we sign up to one of the subcommittees. Do you think what's going on here is a parsing of words? They're not saying a crime wasn't committed and we just can't prove it? I think that's basically it. They're, they, just, they just don't have the evidence to show who, who did this, if anybody did. And uh, they themselves admit that uh, it's a very, very uh, serious set of problems and very strange circumstances and the facts uh, militate that somebody's responsible here other than just plain Trinity. And uh, yet uh, they haven't been able to find out who or what caused this, uh, this particular problem. What about as far as the former inmates who have come forward in the case and now say that their lives are being threatened and one has even been sent back into the federal system because he traveled across lines from Arkansas to Oklahoma to tell his story? Uh, to the Oklahoma County DA, Bob Macy, what he saw the night Trinidad died. Um, he said that he saw an officer cleaning bloody batons the night that Trinidad died. Your comments on that? Don't know much about that. Haven't been into that, but uh, that's serious. That's serious stuff. And uh, like I say, it does look bad. Somebody has not told the truth here. And somebody is, is uh, in my opinion, covering up. And, uh, you know, I wish that wasn't the case. And I'd love to have it proven that it wasn't the case, but I think it's a pretty uphill battle to prove that, that, uh, that uh, nothing happened here other than Trinidad's self-infliction. Uh, that, that, that doesn't look possible to me under the facts that I've seen. So I'm very concerned about it. I just, I just, uh, it just appears to be a tremendous injustice as we sit here right now. Certainly not the Justice Department. Orrin Hatch promised a hearing that doesn't take place. He's repeatedly visited by Eric Holder disappears off of the political spectrum. And it was about several years after this, I guess a year before and several years after this, that we launched 
that FOIA front. And it started in December or January, uh, December of 1995 or January 1996. And this was back before uh, caller ID on phones. And I get a telephone call in December. And the caller says, I want you to know your brother was murdered by the FBI. It was a case of mistaken identity. It was an interrogation that went bad. And I said, what do you mean? They said, well, they suspected him of being part of a, a group who were robbing banks to get money to fund attacks on the federal government. And I dismissed that. And then I, in June or July of 96, I read an article in the paper about a fellow named Richard Lee Guthrie. It was in the Los Angeles Times who hanged himself supposedly while in federal custody the day before he'd promised to give the Los Angeles Times an interview he said would blow the lid off the Oklahoma City bombing. I didn't pay much attention to that either. And then shortly before his death, I get a message from Timothy McVeigh. And McVeigh said, when I saw your brother's photograph and I heard what happened to him, I want you to know that I believe he was killed by the FBI because they thought he was Richard Lee Guthrie. And I didn't, you know, I, I honestly, I didn't think that much about it. But what did focus me was a phone call I received in 2003 from a reporter now dead, a great guy named J.D. Cash. And he called me up and he said, are you Jesse Trinidad? And I said, yes. And he said, can I talk to you? And I said, of course. He said, let me ask some questions about your brother. He said, how tall was he? I said, he was about five foot eight. J.D. said, what was his build? I said, about, he was a powerfully built man. He was about 180 pounds. J.D. said his complexion. I said, he was dark complected then. J.D. said, uh, where was he arrested? I said, he was coming back across the border from Mexico, visiting his wife's family. J.D. said, what was he driving? I said, his friend's 1986 Chevrolet pickup truck. J.D. said, did he have any tattoos? I said, yeah. J.D. said, what kind and where? I said, he had a dragon tattoo on his left forearm. J.D. said, you better sit down. I said, hell, I am sitting down. He said, let me tell you this. He said, at the time your brother was picked up and killed, the largest manhunt in American history was taking place for John Doe II. And this is the description. White male, powerful upper body build, five foot eight to five foot nine, dark complected, believed to be in Canada or Mexico, driving mid 1980s Chevrolet pickup truck, dragon tattoo, left forearm. Turns out one other person had that description too. And that was Richard Lee Guthrie. So now I had a motive and I decided, how am I going to prove it? And I decided through Freedom of Information Act, I had been leaked and I don't want to run a step over my time here, but I'd been leaked two teletypes from FBI director at that time, Louis Free. And they talked about this white supremacist compound in Eastern Oklahoma called Elohim City and how McVeigh had called there several times before the bombing asking for more help. So I filed a Freedom of Information Act request for all documents linking Elohim City to the Oklahoma City bombing and in McVeigh through FBI informants. Well, people say, how can you fight the FBI? They're so big and so powerful, the federal government. I had one real advantage. The FBI will always lie. It will lie when the truth would serve the Bureau better. So I knew they would come back and say, there, there are no such teletypes. 
And that's what they did. And I knew also that when I sprung those teletypes on them in front of the federal judge, they'd come back and say they were fake. So I had an affidavit from a retired FBI agent out of the headquarters saying, no, they were real. So I filed the teletypes. They come back in front of the federal judge and says, oh, those are fraudulent. I filed the affidavit. The judge goes ballistic. He says, I want you to go back and do another search. And he says to me, where should they look? And by that time, I had discovered by doing the research on the FBI that they had started out in the 80s with what they called the June file. Any evidence or materials they didn't want produced on a Freedom of Information Act request or turned over to defense counsel in criminal trials went into the June file. Well, they were found out. So then they invented the zero file. Well, they were found out about that too. And then I found out they had an iDrive. And an iDrive was where they put all the evidence before it's put, uploaded into the official file. And they make the decision as to what is uploaded into the official file. And that's the file given to defense counsel. And that's the file they search for responses to Freedom of Information Act requests. I say to the judge, have them go search the iDrive. And then I found out they'd replace that with an S drive. So, and they've got 24 more letters in the alphabet to go, but they went and searched that and they come back in front of the judge and they said, we've got 340 pages of documents. And they say to him, we can't turn these over, Your Honor, because we had five or six informants there and their lives will be in jeopardy. And the judge says, no, no, turn them over. You can black the names out. And it turns out that the earliest record starts two hours after the bombing in Oklahoma City. And I go back in front of the judge and I say, oh, that's not, that's not possible. That's not possible. And meanwhile, I'd gotten in to see uh, Terry Nichols and he had given me a lot of information about the bombing. And he wanted the story told. And I go in front of the judge and said, I want uh, permission and order from you to go take his deposition and videotape it. The judge says, you've got it. The FBI scurries to the 10th Circuit and gets him reversed. But what was important about that was the information about the I drive and S drive. And then I stumbled onto something called PATCON, P-A-T-C-O-N. And these are on the internet now because for my own safety, I made sure that they were out there as quickly as I got them. And PATCON stood for Patriot Conspiracy. And it looked really big. They talked about PATCON Group 1, PATCON Group 2, PATCON Group 3, and the FBI is backpedaling. I said, oh no, these were just some good old boys down in Alabama who stole some night vision goggles and we went in a sting operation to get them. But last summer, 2011, I get a phone call from a fellow named John Matthews. And Matthews tells me, you've got all the pieces, but you haven't put it together. And I said, what do you mean? He said, PATCON. He said, I'll come and see you. So he came to Utah to see me. And he's an old veteran of the 3rd Marine Division, like me. And he's very sick with Agent Orange. And he had been one of their top operatives in PATCON for a decade, throughout the 90s. And he said, I went underground for the FBI because I believed it was right to monitor these hate groups unlike lots of people who are informants because they're caught in a crime and then uh, are forced to do it. He said, but now I look back on my life and he said, I want the American people to know what was really done. He said, it wasn't to monitor them. He said it was to infiltrate and incite. I said, what do you mean, John? He said, Ruby Ridge was a PATCON operation. Waco was a PATCON operation. He thought Oklahoma City was, but he couldn't prove it he couldn't swear to it because he wasn't there, but the people he worked with were there. 
and he had the documents. PATCON involved a plan to blow up the Browns Ferry nuclear plant in Alabama. It involved running guns out of the same gun store in Arizona that's part of Fast and Furious. And I say to him, I say, John, you want this story told. I can't do it, but I know somebody who can. And so I connected him with an editor at Newsweek. And they're crazy about the story. They spend four months, they confirm everything he said. He's got the FBI records. The story's gonna run the last Monday in November of 2011. I get a call from the reporter at Newsweek that Thursday before to read me the story. It's gonna be 10, eight to 10 pages long. It's gonna talk about the Browns Ferry plant. It's gonna talk about Ruby Ridge. It's gonna talk about Waco. It's gonna talk about the gun store in Fast and Furious. The story comes out on Monday, not a mention of PatCon. Gone. I go back to the reporter, and I go back to John, and John's upset. He said, I, I exposed myself, my family put my family at risk to come out and tell this story, and this, this is what they'd done. All they did was talk for eight pages how, what a hero he had been by infiltrating the Klan and all of these other hate groups. But what came out of that, and again, as a freedom of it looked like a dead end, the Freedom of Information Act fight again, I stumbled on to the fact that the FBI was not only doing it, but had a manual for recruiting and placing informants on the staffs of federal judges, on the staffs of congressmen and senators, among the clergy and local law enforcement. Uh, in uh, media, and even in other federal agencies. And I couldn't believe this, so I've, I've filed a Freedom of Information Act request for it, and they go, hell yeah, we got the manual. Here's 205 pages of it, but you can't have the rest, cause it's national security, or it will reveal our policies and procedures. Now that one, that fight hasn't gone critical yet. It's not yet in the courts. But something tells me I might win that one. I can't imagine a federal judge is going to say to them, oh, yeah, you can keep secret your policies and procedures for putting informants on my staff. But it was the arrogance with which they told me that. And the arrogance was they said, yeah, here's, what we, here's our manual we use for all of these things, but you can't have it all. Now, my time is about there, and as I know a lot of people here are skeptical. The story sounds fanciful. It sounds like somebody who's bitter towards the government, and I am. I'll be the first to admit that. But it didn't start out that way. But I would tell you this. There's a document, usually a contemporaneous FBI document, to support, and I've got, and I put them out there, that support everything almost I told you here today. And what I'd like to show you now is the proof beyond any doubt of my brother's murder, proof that we didn't get from the FBI until it was too late, proof that didn't come until a grand jury had found no crime, proof that didn't come until after the judge had found no murder, proof after they muzzled Hatch. And these are photographs of the ligature mark on my brother's throat. The next photograph is the or a horrible one to say, I should say. In life, your skin has elasticity. So if you wear a watch band and you take it off and you see the impression of the watch, it disappears in a few seconds. If you take off your socks, you'll have a ring around your feet. And that'll disappear, your ankles, in a few seconds. 
When you're dead, your skin does not have elasticity. This, the FBI claimed my brother hanged himself with a braided bedsheet rope. This is the literature mark. These cross sides, you can see there, looks like a railroad track. Those are the, from the locking mechanism on plastic handcuffs. They beat him, they tortured him, strangled him. And so, you ask me how long I want to fight the son of bitches? Until I'm dead. And what justice do I get out of that? Will they ever prosecute anybody for my brother? No, never will. But I can harm the reputation of the Department of Justice. I can harm the reputation of the FBI. I can do great damage to them. And that's my objective. That's the only justice my family will ever get. Thank you for having me. Jesse, the, the case with your brother spans multiple administrations at, at this point. Is corruption a bipartisan or nonpartisan issue? I thought about that. And I think I've concluded that it's a part of, it's due to the fact that the United States is a three-party system. You have Democrats, you have Republicans, you have the third party, which is the permanent party. And the permanent party are the higher-ups in the agencies like the FBI and the ATF that don't change when the administrations change. They're there for decades. They set the policies. They run those agencies, not the president. Why can't this story get more traction? I mean, I was pleased to see that CNN did something, but why no follow-up? Why no return visits on the news? I think it's best stated when I started these Freedom of Information Act cases and I started to get these records showing that the United States government had a series of informants at this place called Elohim City and had prior knowledge of the plan to blow up the Murrow building. And it's not just me making it up, it's the actual records they produced. And I'm contacted by the media and, and they were surprised that I gave them copies of it. And I said to them, and even the BBC did too. And I said, here, yes, take them. Are you going to do this story? And what I essentially heard was, this story is so ugly, we want to be second. And the only person, the only group entity that did the film or retold the story was the BBC, who came and spent a month filming in Oklahoma City, went back and ran it prime time for an hour in Great Britain. And I understand it ran in Europe and most of the world. The only other place, the only place I understand that it has not aired, I talked to the producer, was the United States. So here they, they make a, a film with all this evidence and it won't even be aired on the American television network. Uh, I'm gonna open it up to you guys for questions as well. There is a microphone here that we can, is that live and ready to go? Why is it, with the internet and things going viral, why is this not more uh, widely known and distributed? Uh, I think PatCon is all over the internet. 
I think the iDrive and S drives are now all over the internet. Uh, what I'm hearing now, and I'm trying to verify it, is so much of the the discovery in criminal cases now is produced to defense counsel on a disk. And the FBI is putting spyware in there that reports back as to what you've looked at, or more importantly, what evidence you didn't look at. And that's why I'm telling people now that when you get this, when I get documents from the government, I don't put it on my computer system, you put it on a standalone system. Nothing is connected to the internet, you put it on a standalone system. But all these stories are getting out there. Uh, it's just that you don't have the punch you would if, if the New York Times or the Washington Post or LA Times would run the stories and they don't seem to want to. And part of that may be that, uh, and this is on the internet too, and part of this informant process is they had corrupted uh, by the mid 90s, ABC News, they had placed uh, a top level informant at the top level of ABC News and what these informants do is they kill stories that are unfavorable to the government. And when someone comes forward to the press with, on a promise of anonymity with a story about the government, they turn the names over to the government. And there are stories out there about that too. I would suggest you also have to know what you're looking for. If it were not for Ari and others, I would not know about the story and I wouldn't know to look for some of these things and I wouldn't have known about PatCon until I was sent information just a few days ago about it. So you can be, you can think you're knowledgeable and sort of uh, well-read and up on the news and still not have a clue what's going on out there.